This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You've just got me, it's Zach, on presenting duties today. So kind of expect the chaos to reign because, hey, the boss lady isn't in the house. And let's be honest, I'm hapless at the best of times. But to save us from the anarchy, we have serving soldier, all-round nice guy, Sean Scullion, joining me. We're going to talk about the Spaniards in the British Army during the Second World War. So an interesting topic, one that we haven't covered in any kind of meaningful depth, I don't think, certainly not to the extent that we'd have liked on the show before. Sean is a Hispanist. He studied Spanish at the University of Nottingham. He was brought up in Spain, in fact, under the Franco regime. There's a whole question that we need to ask there about what that was like. Um, he's secretary of the Royal Engineers Historical Society, secretary of Peninsula War 200, and the Friends of the Lions of Torres Vedras. He's a battlefield tour guide, a specialist in Spanish history and culture, and the Spanish Civil War and the British Army, which is quite a CV. Um, as I pause to gather breath, Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Zach. Thank you very much. Um, uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, quite a quite a lot of uh, military history I've been involved with in the last twenty years. But now turning back to kind of my alma mater with the uh, the Spanish Civil War and and the research I'm doing on on the the Spaniards who uh, served in the British Army in World War Two. So before we talk about history, let me just kind of pause for a second and talk about your history because you know growing up under Franco's Spain, what was that like? Yes, it was. Um, it was. It was. It, and I, I, I've often sat down and thought about it. Obviously, at the time, it was just very normal for me. <laughs> um, being in Spain at the end of the Franco dictatorship, and then living in Spain through the transition to democracy after Franco died, and then being in and around um, a lot of Spanish people who had lived under a regime 
far longer than I did uh, was was yeah it, it was it was it was very dif- different. I my brother and I were brought up in a well we were educated in, in the Spanish way. We were brought up in a Catholic convent school. Spain was dominated. The education system was dominated by the Catholic Church in those days. It had been. Uh, um, fully kind of uh, changed by the Franco regime, so 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 that was that was quite different, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was um, there the, the were periods I remember, especially in the period before Franco died, there were quite a few periods of tension where people who had been assassinated. There's the famous there's the famous incident, of course, of his um, his deputy uh, being blown up in the car. Um, being blown up so high that it went over the top of the building. That um, they say that that was the the, the first Spaniard who ever entered space, um, jokingly. Um, um, but things like that, it, the tensions were certainly there. And then this whole uh, period of uh, kind of freedom suddenly. Uh, that it has been said that there was not a bottle of champagne to be had in all of Spain when Franco died in November 1975. I, I got a day of school, so, you know, that was pretty cool. Um, I was quite happy with that. Um, um, and then they buried him in the, uh, the, the Valley of the Fallen, which obviously now they've uh, taken his body out and put it in a, in a, in a different cemetery. So, uh, so that's quite, quite interesting. So, yeah, so it, was a, it, was, it certainly shaped me. Uh, and made me want to study what I'm doing, and and I, you know, as a consequence of being in Spain as a child, I studied Spanish university, and, and and that's why I'm carrying on doing all this kind of stuff now. Okay, well, let's dive in with the history then, because there's an origin story that we need to discuss here, which really is going to take us back to the start of the Franco story, right? So, how do Spaniards end up coming to fight in the British Army during the Second World War, and I'm guessing the Spanish Civil War is going to loom large in this. It, it is. It's a shadow that's cast over these individuals, um, well, until even today. Um, uh, but actually, the reality is is that um, the Spanish Civil War did have a, a long-lasting effect on a lot of people who weren't even Spanish. Um, there were a lot of people who were heavily involved in the resistance movements against uh, the Nazi regime, et cetera, et cetera. You've got these lots of different um, resistance movements across Europe and uh, the, the, found, the, the foundations of which were, came from people who'd been in the international brigades in, in Spain. And there's, there's a lot of good stuff written by people like Gildea, uh, et cetera, who, uh, who've written extensively on that. But from the Spanish, the, these Spanish individuals, point of view, we're talking about men of a fighting age who finished the Spanish Civil War in 1939. They had no choice. The the Republican army was defeated. Spain um, had been fighting a Spanish Civil War for three years. Uh, A lot of these Spaniards were were men who had been born um, either in the period of the First World War or around the period of the First World War, a bit later in the late late, uh, 1910s, early 1920s. Um, and they'd seen a, a huge period of change in Spain. They, they'd, uh, they, they'd seen Spain being neutral during the Spanish Civil War. They then witnessed the uh, dictatorship, uh, the first dictatorship of, uh, uh, of that period, which was uh, by Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera, the general who took over power in the 1920s. And then they, they then w- uh, witnessed, probably as early teenagers or, or still as school children, the establishment 
of the of the Republic uh, in the early 30s, the um, uh, the the flight of the uh, Spanish royal family into exile, and then the turbulent period um, up until um, July 1936 when the Spanish army decided it was going to rise up and try and take uh, Spain by force. That failed, and as a consequence, the Spanish Civil War then kicked in. A lot of these people fought on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War, and then by 1939, early 1939, when the, when the war was, was coming to an end, um, we're talking about uh, a thing called La Retirada, the, the withdrawal into, into France, where we're talking about 450 to 500,000 Spaniards um, um, ending up in southern, southern France, um, it, um, going, uh, being put into camps, etc. And and that and that's really where the, the story begins for a lot of these men um, fighting in uniform beyond the Spanish Civil War. So for those men, obviously this is an age where you know today we're used to notions of asylum. These men would quite clearly, in in modern day terms, be contenders for seeking asylum, having been forced from their country by uh, by the war. But you know this is 1939 very, very different circumstances. So what's their reception like in France? Not great. The French were going through a period of turbulence as well in the 1930s. Uh, Troisième République uh, was, was crumbling. Uh, Blum was, 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 uh, you know, was no longer the power. Um, the French started to pass a series of laws anticipating some of the evacuations of other countries in Europe. So they had a lot of the legal uh, elements in place, but actually when nearly half a million Spaniards turn up on your doorstep in the space of less than a month, it's a little bit of a shock. I mean, there were five um, five um, exoduses from the Spanish Civil War during the 1936 to 39 period, but the, the 1939 one was huge. And, um, uh, and they had to rush and, and build camps uh, just across the border from um, from Spain uh, on the we're talking about the Mediterranean side, some of the some of the um, famous camps were set up very very quickly in the middle of winter. We're talking January, February, early March, nineteen thirty nine, and therefore the, the French were really caught off guard. But the big problem with all of that was was that um, the about two hundred two hundred twenty thousand of those half a million were Spanish soldiers who were from the Republican Army. These were the men of the fighting age that we will be covering. And they get, a lot of them end up either going across the border as, um, as, as units, uh, and then they get uh, disarmed and then put into holding camps. Quite a lot of these individuals end up being able to, to get their families to cross over the border because by then, obviously, Catalonia is the, the country that, the part of Spain that's really been pushed hard and that's the last bit of the Spanish Republic um, fighting um, that actually ends up um, having to withdraw into France. So a lot of the, the families of these soldiers end up, but they all get separated. And so the French end up pushing uh, the, the families, the elder, uh, older members of families, children, women, into different camps, into the interior of France. And these men of a fighting age get held in a lot of these camps along the southern part of France, especially on the Mediterranean side, but further over in places like near Bayonne, but there's a famous camp called Gurs. And then, of course, um, as, as uh, that 1939 progresses and the, the, the next few months, 
and they build even more camps. And one of the most famous ones is, is uh, Bacares, which is not far from Perpignan. And that also becomes a, a training camp for, uh, for, for Spaniards who volunteer to join the French armed forces. So they volunteered to join the French armed forces. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. We know what happens to France in 1940 yeah. in, in that sort of spring, a very early summer period. So what's their experience and, and how does that, does that then lead us into them joining the, the British? Yeah, so, so, so what, what happens is, is we're talking April, May 1939 and the French have uh, passed a final ruling in April, 12th of April, I think it is, 1939, where they, they decide they're going to press the, these French um, people for fighting agent service. And the Spaniards have five choices. They can either return to France, so it's return to Spain, sorry. They can um, sign up on a contract to work in agriculture or in industry, mostly the armaments industry, as it turns out. They can volunteer to join labor companies, kind of French version of the Pioneer Corps. These were called Compagnie de Travailleurs Etrangers, so foreign, company, foreign workers' companies. They could join the French Foreign Legion for a period of five years, or they could volunteer to join volunteer marching uh, regiments um, uh, for the duration of the war, duration de la guerre. These were régiments de marche de, de volontaires étrangères. And there were three of those regiments, with each with four battalions, I think, uh, set up at the beginning of uh, uh, starting from the summer of 1939. So, so they, yeah, so it can be quite severe. We're, we're talking about 50 to 55,000 Spaniards already working by the summer, well, autumn of 1939 um, in uh, the uh, uh, labor companies and um, about 10,000 um, signing up to join the actual army, whether it be the French Foreign Legion or the, these volunteer marching um, battalions. So for them, yeah, it's a, it's a real shock. But at the same time, actually, you know, <laughs> quite a lot of them have just been fighting in the Spanish Civil War. So and it's much of the same for them. You know, it's not, it's not exactly something that's uh, too different. Um, but the, the the French certainly uh, take them on, and and uh, the French Foreign Legion is certainly um, aware that as a consequence of taking on all these recruits, and they, the French Foreign Legion did have a huge recruiting issue in the 1930s, but obviously by 1938, 1939, that wasn't necessarily a problem anymore because of people fleeing from Germany, Poland, people like that, places like that, and obviously Spain. Um, in 90, I think it's uh, the period of 1939 into early 1940, 40% of those recruited in the French Foreign Legion were Spanish. They, they only made up a, a very small percentage of the overall body of the French Foreign Legion, 1% or 2%, but 40% of those recruited were Spanish. So there's quite a lot. It's a bit of a shock to the system. And the French Foreign Legion did struggle with, especially the political side, the fact that a lot of these Republican soldiers had a lot of war experience, a lot of battle-hardened, but actually they were used to a more cooperative and more socialist way of fighting rather than the strict discipline of the French Foreign Legion. So there is this shock, this shock of capture in as far as being put in an internment camp. You know, they were called concentration camps by the French, but they're, they're internment camps. And then this hard discipline, um, this hard kind of regime imposed on them if they were joining units like the French Foreign Legion or even some of these uh, volunteer marching battalions because 
a lot of these march, volunteer marching battalions were based on the Front Legion. They weren't part of the Front Legion, but some of them ended up being um, um, uh, merged into um, uh, Front Legion regiments um, uh, over the next year or so. So yeah, so that, that that's that, that's that's a bit of a shock then for them. Um, and, and those are the choices they have. Um, so it's you know it's, it's quite a it's quite quite a stark choice. But for them, in order to be able to get out of the camps, those are the choices they have. They don't want, they can't, they know they're not going to be able to go back to, to Spain. By by then, Fra Franco had a very good concentration camp system set up back in Spain, and it was already asking. Um, he'd already he, he started to to sign deals with. Germany and with Vichy France to be able to deport um, specifically targeted individuals who were on lists, and some of them did end up going back, being sent back to to, to Spain, and, and and were and were um, were shot. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, so quite a hard choice to make. How do they end up in British service, though? What's the What's yeah. So sorry. Yeah. So 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 what what ends up happening is is that uh, we we can probably now look at the, the summer of 1940, and um, in early 1940 we're talking about um, uh, as I say about 60 to 65 thousand, um, 60 yeah 65 to 70 thousand Spaniards were uh, fighting for France in one way or another in the, in the armed forces. And uh, France gets uh, invaded in May 1940. Um, by that stage, the, the, the Spanish made up a company of um, pioneers as such, a labor company, it's called the 185 Labor Company, that was attached to the British Expeditionary Force. And they worked um, for um, the Expeditionary Force, uh, mostly in the San Nazaire area. And then we also have the, the volunteer marching battalions that are, have ended up um, uh, being used on things like the Maginot Line and fighting for the defence of Paris later on in June and things like that. A lot of the um, uh, volunteer marching battalion individuals end up getting captured um, or are able to kind of melt into, into the background in some cases, but a lot of them do end up getting captured and some of those sadly end up in prison of war stroke concentration camps in Germany. The, the story of the 185 um, uh, Spanish Labour Company is quite interesting. Uh, 15, um, 16, sorry, of the individuals in that company are able to get on a ship um, as it is um, being evacuated from uh, San Nazaire, which is loaded with uh, poles. And uh, they're able to get, a, get on that ship and travel to the UK. And they then get held in Plymouth at Citadel um, for a while. And then they get released to go and join up the Pioneer Corps. And they are um, held in Westwood Ho and end up joining um, what then becomes number one Spanish company of the Pioneer Corps. But, but actually, at the same time as that, um, we've got to look at the individuals, the Spaniards who signed up for the French Foreign Legion. We've got two large groups of um, Spaniards who, who, who joined the French Foreign Legion. As I said, that you've got the ones who, who are in the volunteer marching battalions, but also the ones who are just joining the French Foreign Legion itself. And a lot of those end up in what becomes the, the 13th Half Brigade of the French Foreign Legion. And that ends up fighting in Narvik in, um, in May, uh, April, May 1940, and is made up of several hundred uh, Spaniards. And um, it's a, it's a bit of a long story, but 
but in in in, in short, um, they fight in Narvik. Um, they get draw, withdrawn early from Nar- from Norway in order to fight in France. They come back to the UK briefly, then go to France, uh, uh, land in Brest, uh, are then going forward uh, to fight. Get told, no, it's it's not going to happen. So they end up withdrawing back to the coast, returning back to uh, the United Kingdom, and they're held in Trenton Park uh, in the Midlands. And this is around the time that, of course, um, uh, de Gaulle is starting to appear on the scene as well. Uh, de Gaulle makes his announcement to rally and for the for the free French uh, element to be established. And he, he, he makes that call to arms on the 18th of June. And on the 28th of June, he visits Trenton Park to, tr- to try and drum up support for people to join the free French. And amongst those, amongst those legionnaires there are these you know, several hundred Spaniards. 300 of these Spaniards decide they're going to do a sort of protest, sit down, sit down protest whilst the parade is going on with de Gaulle visiting. They then get incarcerated and sent to uh, Stafford Prison. Um, and then the, um, there's a lot of uh, hard decisions to be made. A lot of the French foreign legionnaires want to return to France or, return, or go to Africa, which is obviously where the French foreign legion was based, Algeria, etc. So on the 1st, the 13th Brigade is, the half brigade is disbanded. And shortly after, I think it's on the same day or the 2nd, um, half of that brigade end up getting on a train and going down to um, Avonmouth to Bristol to then get on a ship to go back to Africa. And the Spaniards are told that they have to go as well. And there's a standoff at the railway station. And luckily, uh, the British intervene. And the, the British intervene mostly because they decide that the, the French have made a few phone calls back to um, the, let's say, the Vichy elements in London. And the Vichy elements in London have said, or, or the French Foreign Legion uh, command in in, uh, in the UK says, well, shoot one out of every three to pour encourager les autres. And of course, the Brits, the Brits get, um, the, British, the British authorities get wind of this and over 300 Spaniards are able to then stay in the UK. And they then, the, the majority of those then make up the number one Spanish company, uh, which is the longest serving element of the, um, the, the longest serving unit, let's say subunit. This is a company, it's about 250 to 300 strong. And it's the longest serving element of a uh, largest group of Spaniards that serve in the British Army uh, during World War II. So they're, they're established in July, fully, fully established in Westwood Ho in September 1940. And they go on to serve all the way through until the summer of 1946. So, you know, they're, they're you know, uh, and they're quite busy. And they, they have an interesting story as well. Um, shortly after that, in December 1940, um, uh, Britain realises that um, the Iberian Peninsula is going to be really important post-invasion um, of France, and um, Gibraltar is going to um, play a, a leading role to allow um, the Mediterranean to be um, to be accessed. And they realise that they're going to need Spanish speakers to help with any kind of guerrilla warfare stroke or fighting behind enemy lines should the Germans invade the Iberian Peninsula and try and attack Gibraltar uh, um, on the ground. So um, Hugh Quinnell, who's, uh, who, who, who had been a solicitor, he, he gets approached, gets a commission and is um, then becomes a member of the SOE um, 
1940 and is then put in charge of H section, which is the section that deals with um, the Iberian Peninsula. And he visits the the barracks in which the number one Spanish company are based in Plymouth in uh, nineteen in December, early December nineteen forty, and the first group of sconces and these are the agents that are going to be trained uh, are are start their training. And over the course of the the end of nineteen forty, the whole of nineteen forty one, most of nineteen forty two, and into nineteen forty three. 140 odd of the Spaniards in number one, the Spanish company end up getting trained by the SOE in order to become these people who are going to hide, uh, fight behind enemy lines. And there's a couple other stories uh, on that. Uh, Kim Philby um, it carries out training. Ian Fleming writes the operational orders uh, for some of these operations that are taking place. And then there's also the story of um, a well-known uh, fascist sympathizer called Peter Kemp, who, uh, who fought on Franco's side in the Spanish Civil War, but because of his um, experience in Spain, uh, gets taken onto the books of the SOE and ends up uh, potentially working with these sconces. Luckily, they never worked together, otherwise I think he wouldn't have lasted very long. Um, um, and anyway, and sadly, the, the sconces never get used in Spain because Spain is never invaded by Germany. But I have some evidence that seems to show that there are some Spaniards, anything between 10 and 25 out of those 140, that are used in some sort of operations in probably in France in 1944. Um, but I haven't been able to get the National Archive records on any of that yet. Um, so that's still a bit of an unknown. But the company carries on training in the UK. Um, it becomes a forestry, um, specialises in forestry, does a lot of work on the defences when there's the potential invasion of, of Britain, late 1940, early 41. Um, does a lot of work on forestry, works with the New Zealanders. There's a couple of New Zealand forestry companies that come over to the UK, works with them. And it lands in Normandy in August 1944, works in France, and then gets pushed forward into the Ardennes and works into the Ardennes until September 1945, returns back to the UK and is disbanded in 1946. So that's quite an interesting story. A couple of uh, interesting individuals there. Um, uh, Alfred Molina, fairly famous actor, um, Spider-Man, etc. His father was a member of the number one Spanish company. Um, uh, and then you've got a few other interesting individuals as well. So, and there's a couple of Gibraltarians thrown in there for, for good measure, um, uh, which I've been looking at recently. So, so that's the number one Spanish company. Um, and, you know, and it's it's a it's a pretty pretty interesting pretty interesting story. Um, and the, the second the second group is um, is the the Spaniards who are in the Middle East. That is one hell of a story. Um, and what I find quite impressive is the way that you hold all of that information just inside your head because I'm useless with these kinds of things. And these yeah, five, five years of research, uh, Zach. Um, um, you know, I've even got, I've managed to track down, I think there are 1,200 Spaniards who served in the British Army. I have managed to track down 940 names and regimental numbers. Um, so, so, yeah, when you get into that detail and you physically interview families, I've interviewed over 50 families now. Um, and they send you the photos, they, and you look at the National Archives, you look at the diaries and everything else. Yeah, so yeah, yeah they, you kind of live and breathe it. It's what I do in the evenings. It's very sad, but there you go. Passes the time. 
I'm a crime and punishment nerd. You know, I, I understand that kind of that need to dig into people's stories. I've been a bit of crime and punishment with the Spanish as well. They did get up to shenanigans quite often. Yeah, I think everybody seems to get up in, in, involved in shenanigans at one time or another. It's remarkable how many of these stories end up falling out of research. But you mentioned there's a second group. Is this the, the group that ends up serving with 50th Middle East Commando? Yeah, so 50 Middle East Commando. Um, so yeah, so you, you know, I was telling you about these bataillon de marche de volontaires étrangères, these uh, volunteer battalions. Well, some of them get subsumed into the French Foreign Legion because they're formed, they're, they're established quite late in 1940, before the war kicks off, or before the invasion kicks off and France capitulates. And a lot of them, because obviously French Foreign Legion training centre was in North Africa, a lot of them end up getting subsumed into these training, into these um, Foreign Legion regiments and then get sent out and about and one of them is the is the the first battalion of 23 of the 23rd regiment so the premier bataillon of the 23e regiment de volontaires étrangers and that gets sent to syria and it then becomes the 11th battalion of the of one of the french foreign legion regiments out there and what happens basically is is that uh, that um uh uh, group of people, we're probably talking three, four, four, three to four hundred Spaniards again, nearly as many as you get in the in the the thirteenth brigade I was telling about before, thirteenth half, half brigade. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner, in nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, this 11th Battalion is pretty much, uh, you know, very, very much filled with Spaniards. And they get sent to Beirut, they, they arrive in Beirut, and then they go to a place called Baalbek, um, and then the summer of 1940 happens, and obviously there's a lot of uncertainty. And um, you've got a lot of the Spaniards realise that they're just, you know, they're going to be handed over to the Germans or something like that, you know. So they try and escape, and a lot of them get imprisoned and can't can't escape. Homs, there's a load of them in Homs. Obviously, we know a lot about Homs from the Syria conflict over the last ten years, but a lot of them get imprisoned in Homs. Um, but it turns out that 63 of them in total are able to get away. There's a group of about 50. They manage to commandeer a couple of trucks. And there's a good little story of when they get to the Palestinian border, um, they're able to um, get across the border because one of the Spaniards jumps out of his truck and smashes, um, smashes the border guard with his rifle butt on his shins. And then they just drive through the barrier. And, and that's a guy called um, Joaquin Fajardo, Joaquin Fajardo's son, Tony has helped me a lot with 50 Middle East Brigades, uh, Middle East and uh, Commando stuff. So that's really good. Um, I know that that group 50. And then there's uh, two groups of half a dozen or so who are able to um, escape on foot. Um, um, I'm not being able to fully um, uh, get into the detail on this, but I think I'm fairly sure that the 50 were from the 11th Battalion and the two groups of six or so were from French, were pure French Foreign Legion in as far as they were from the volunteer battalion. Anyway, they all end up in Egypt. Um, 
the they're interviewed um, and they get put on the books of First Fifth Battalion of the Queen's Royal Regiment, West Surrey. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, pretty much straight away, and we're talking July 1940 here, um, there's three groups assigned onto the Queen's Royal Regiment. Uh, I think it's July, August, and early September. But by early September, the Middle East commandos are being established. And there's a major, soon-to-be Lieutenant Colonel, a guy called, a Royal Engineer um, Major, soon-to-be Lieutenant Colonel, called George Young, who ends up um, interviewing, along with some of his other officers, uh, the Spaniards, and they get taken onto the books of the newly established 50 Middle East Commando. And then they get straight into training. And soon after that, in October and then November, 51 Middle East Commando, then 52 Middle East Commandos are set up. And this is on the back of the Churchill announcement of coming up with uh, commando units to do these raids and all this. And we're talking about, you know, small groups um, uh, being mostly were, were fighting behind enemy lines, it, you know, and this is the precursor to the special forces in the Middle East, or what then be, later became the SAS, uh, long range desert group, all these other, other things were all happening roughly around the same time. So the Spaniards end up making up uh, a, a large portion of one of the subunits of 50 Middle East Commando. And um, Lieutenant Colonel George Young uh, then hands over command of 50 Middle East Commando. They then end up um, being sent out and they have a bit of a frustrating period between uh, November and March, well, March, yeah, March uh, 1941, because it's literally on the boat, off the boat when it comes to operations. Some of the operations happen, some of the operations don't. Um, that, you know, things get cancelled at the last minute. One of the biggest problems is, of course, you don't have a predominance of amphibious craft in those days, landing craft. It's all a relatively new thing. So they're getting on, on and off ships. Uh, the Royal Navy is not necessarily always comfortable with, with certain operations because obviously with the invasion of Greece, et cetera, et cetera. Germany is, is very much dominating the air and therefore there's a, there's a, there's a big uh, threat there for the Navy. But the um, 50 Middle East Commando end up, ends up going to Crete and helps the garrison there in late 1940, stays until early 1941, then gets sent back to, to, to Egypt. And by that stage, 51 and 52 Commando who had been fighting in Abyssinia and Ethiopia fighting the Italians, they've done really well. A bit frustrating for 50 Middle East Commando because obviously they haven't done as many operations. But then you get um, uh, Laycock, who's the famous um, commando guy, he 
sets up lay force and lay force is made up of four battalions um, and um, A, B, C and D battalion. And D battalion ends up being a mixture of 50 Middle East commando and 52 Middle East commandos because of injuries and illness and people being sent back to units. Because these are all volunteers from different units um, who made up these these, um, these individuals in these units. So they, they become D, D battalion of lay force. Anyway, end of May 1941, Crete happens, the uh, the Germans invade Crete by the air, and lay force is put into action. And um, the A battalion and D battalion are sent. And when uh, when Laycock lands, General Freiburg, who's commander of, of Cree force, has already, has literally that day makes the decision that the island is going to be evacuated. And the uh, the, the commandos land in the north, in Suda Bay, and they then become the rear guard protecting the force that is going to withdraw from the north of Crete to the south of Crete and get with, and get evacuated from Spakia on the south coast. So they become the rear guard and it's D battalion that are doing most of that fighting. And we're only talking about three days of fighting because by the 1st of June, it's all over and... Um, um, the evacuation has been stopped, and who is left on the island has to um, is, is told to surrender. And sadly, because D Battalion is the rear guard, uh, a lot of D Battalion does get taken prisoner. But the company that um, in D Company, sorry, in D Battalion, uh, is called B Company, and B Company is where all the Spaniards are, and they end up being the rear guard of the rear guard. On one of the nights before, um, they reach Spakia, and some of the Spaniards are captured um, during that, and also captured at the end on the first. And George Young is the, the senior officer who has to hand over um, his surrender um, on the beach. They then get moved to Thessaloniki. The, those who are captured, there's 35, 36, sorry, who were made prisoner out of the 63 Spaniards. Uh, they get sent to Thessaloniki. Again, they're getting paranoid about what's going to happen. It turns out that um, one of the um, medical officers uh, from Middle East Commando fought in the Spanish Civil War, and he comes up with the idea, well, why don't you just say that you're Gibraltarian, then you're covered? And they, and they all say that. So all their documentation, their prisoner of war documentation, says that they are um, prison, uh, prisoners of war from Gibraltar, and that covers them. So they're, then, they're, they're treated like normal prisoners of war. And then they get sent to Germany, Poland, and everything else. And there's a few stories in the prisoner of war camps, two, two stories I've come across in the prisoner of war camp. One is um, uh, some of the Spaniards helped to do, dig tunnels to help people to escape. One of them was a very good mathematician, was very good at measuring how the, the direction of the tunnel using compasses and, and geometry and everything else. So that, that worked really well. Uh, one of them was really good at dyeing, dyeing people's uniforms to, to, to make it to different colours. He became like, you know, really good at dyeing people's. And then there's also Joaquin Fajardo, who I mentioned before, the guy on the, the border. He, he um, has a bit of a run-in with some of the Spaniards who uh, are on a train traveling to the Eastern Front. And these Spaniards are Spaniards from the Blue Division, who are Franco's troops, who are Spaniards who uh, volunteer to join Franco's division to fight with the Germans against the Russians in the Eastern Front. And Joaquin Fajardo comes across them, starts throwing stones and things at the train as it's going by, you know. So that, that's quite a, quite a little, quite an amazing story. The big, the big quandary is what happens to the other 
25 to 30 who don't get captured. And this is where it becomes a little bit more convoluted. So um, um, some of them end up, uh, some of them end up, um, two of them end up joining the SAS, in fact. Um, one of them who joins the SAS ends up uh, escaping and evading on Crete for 11 months in the mountains. It's an amazing story. And uh, he, he, Francisco Geronimo, he changes his name to Frank Williams. All the guys who are in the SAS change their names, apart from one. Uh, I'll talk about those later on, but but yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating. And and basically, what happens is is that um, some of these Spaniards, well, it, it would seem that the majority of the Spaniards who didn't go, who, who either didn't go to Crete or weren't captured in Crete, um, ended up becoming members of the One Special Service Regiment, which then ended up becoming the SAS. So. My task at the moment is to try and find out from the archives if there is any evidence that they were involved in any special service regiment operations in late 1940 and into 1940, sorry, in late 1941 and into 1942. Some of them end up in the Pioneer Corps, but that's not until 1943. So that's the big question. What do they do until 1943? So, so that's your, that's your uh, Middle East commandos. And, and obviously the, the POWs, they end up being sent back to Britain at the end of the war. And ironically, the majority of the others end up in Britain as well, because some of them end up rejoining the Queen's War Regiment, uh, West Surrey as well, and fight in Italy, D-Day, and end up in Germany. So the majority of those 63 end up in the UK at the end of the Second World War, which is quite a fascinating fascinating story in a roundabout way. So it's just a bit weird, but there you go. That's one of those just weird coincidences of war, isn't it? That they all just end up sort of coming back together towards the end. Um, yeah. You talked about the SAS. I want to dig. I want to know more. So what, what do we know about the S, their involvement in the SAS and what they're doing in terms of operations? Well, actually, you know, there's a lot. Um, but, but before we cover the SAS, I, I'm, I'm going to briefly touch on North Africa because what basically happens is I mentioned some of those Spaniards from 50 Commando becoming members of the Pioneer Corps, Torch happens, Operation Torch happens. And this is actually when we have the largest group of Spaniards joining the British Army. You've got a lot of Spaniards who've been interned in concentration and slave labour camps in North Africa. They get liberated at the end of 1942, and about 400 en masse, probably more actually, probably about 550 actually, en masse, join the British Army as pioneers. And three of those pioneer companies end up in the UK. But some of those individuals who are in North Africa, they're either, they're either in some of those slave labor camps or they've been interned because they've joined the French Foreign Legion or have joined some of these battalions and Vichy France doesn't trust them. They get freed and they end up volunteering to join the more kind of uh, combat uh, related units and they end up going through selection and a lot of them end up in the SAS. So you've got two Spaniards who've been in 50 Middle East Commando. I've talked about Francisco Geronimo, Frank Williams. Justo Valerdi is another one. He's a Basque. He, he sadly gets killed in action in 1945, but he, he's been in 50 Middle East Commando and he, um, he, he joins the SAS um, and he changes his name to Robert Bruce. Um, and then you've got another seven or eight Spaniards who have been in North Africa, who end up in the SAS uh, eventually. Some of them um, go through that kind of pioneer corps 
uh, way. Some of them just go straight for some sort of selection that happens in North Africa. But all of them end up in the United Kingdom in early 19, uh, early 1944, when the SAS Brigade are being um, properly trained. And because by the time D-Day happens, we're talking about five SAS regiments. We're talking about one and two SAS who are mostly British, three and four SAS that are French and five SAS that's Belgian. So yeah, so these these, these Spaniards, they you know it's, it's absolutely incredible, really. Um, the training they go through. Some of the stories are amazing as well. You know, there's 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 a, the story of um, a guy called Angel Camarena. Angel Camarena, um, um, uh, the family uh, was was still waiting for his his file to come through from the Spanish archives, and I, I say the Spanish archives because most of these, the files I'm looking at are British ones. But actually, he was a, a regular soldier before the Spanish Civil War kicked off. And he was in Tenerife, uh, Tenerife, in 1935-1936. And of course, that's where Franco was based. And he was a chauffeur. And the legend is, is that he drove Franco himself. But what is certain is that in the summer of 1936, he is on a list of 21 people who have been condemned to death by firing squad. And he is one of three that managed to get away. The other 19 are killed. But he manages to get away. I'm not, it might be 18 or killed, actually. But the reason he's managed this to get away is because he's, they're, they're put on a, a prison ship uh, somewhere. I'm not too sure where. I, I think it's still in the Canaries. And as he's there, him and the other two or three that are, um, that are with him are going to be shot, um, a British ship goes by. And he's a, he jumps overboard and escapes. He gets picked up by the British ship. And then the Brits hand him over on the proviso. He's not going to get killed. He gets put into a, he gets put into a slave labor concentration camp in Morocco and then ends up uh, being interned until 1941. 1941 is when Franco does his first amnesty for prisoners from the Spanish Civil War. He, he returns back to Spain, realizes this. Spain is obviously not for him. And then he finds out about Torch, he gets over to North Africa, joins the Pioneer Corps, goes through SAS selection and becomes a member of second SAS. So he's, he's typical of some of the, the others, you know. So, yeah, so they, they go through training in 19, early 1944. And then these, these members of second SAS, second SAS were, had a few other nationalities in it as well, not, not just Spaniards, obviously. There were, there were Poles, there were, you know, other Eastern Europeans as well in there. Um, but these, these Spaniards, and, and there were Spaniards in third and fourth SAS as well, because they'd been in the Free French Army, uh, decided to join the Gaul, ended up joining third and fourth SAS. So yeah, so they, they, they go for all their training and they get dropped behind enemy lines um, after D-Day. There's lots of operations in North Africa. The, the, the um, um, Spaniards are involved in several operations in, 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 in France in 1944. Um, one of those uh, operations is um, <laughs> it's quite an interesting one. There's a guy who ends up being called John Coleman, um, he changes his name to, and uh, he uh, he 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 gets dropped behind enemy lines uh, part of an SAS operation in, in the uh, more more towards the south of France. And you know he he he's a corporal. He ends up leading a team, and they attack and. Uh, uh, German position, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of little stories like that, but actually probably the most exciting story um, with the SAS guys is the um, is Operation Tombola. Operation Tombola is, was an audacious raid, raiding attack 
behind the German lines in northern Italy in March, April, May 1945. Um, and there were three Spaniards who were involved in that operation, which is, which is you know, absolutely fascinating. Um, one of them was Justo Valerdi, and he died on that operation. The other one was Francisco Jerónimo, Frank Williams. And the third person is a guy called Rafael Ramos. Rafael Ramos is the only person who doesn't change his name. He, he, got, he was called Ralph. They just called him Ralph. So that kind of works. And Tombola is an amazing operation. It's, it's one of these operations that you couldn't make it up. Um, um, there's a, a famous, uh, probably infamous member of the SAS called Roy Ferran. He, he, he became infamous later because he was involved in, supposedly involved in atrocities in Palestine after the war. Uh, I haven't read up on that, so I don't know. But um, but he was a major at the time. He he, ran, he, he was uh, commanding the squadron that was sent from Second SAS to support operations behind enemy lines in in um, uh, in Italy at the end of 1944-1945. And he decides that Operation Tombola needs to take place. They they managed to track down through SOE partisans, etc that um, in the northern parts or uh, northern area of, of Italy, uh, in, uh, north of the Gothic line, which is the final kind of stopping line that the Germans have put together, um, there was a, a core headquarters. They managed to track down core headquarters through the kind of Italian espionage, et cetera. Um, uh, and he decided they were going to do a series of attacks and raids. And one of those attacks and raids, part of Tombola, was uh, the attack on its headquarters. So the majority of the SAS members of that, of that uh, operation get parachuted in, and Roy Franz one of them. He's not actually supposed to be doing it, but he accidentally falls out of an aeroplane with a parachute on And he joins them and he leads the operation. And it's such a success that actually he gets, he gets a commendation from the, from the Americans and therefore he can't be called Barshav. But what happens is, is that Rafael Ramos has an amazing story linked in with, with this operation mostly because uh, an operation had happened in January, February, not too far away from the operational area of Tombola called Gallia. And Gallia lost contact with um, the, the Allied um, headquarters, the Special Forces headquarters. And therefore, um, the, the, the decision was made to send these um, a, a very small group of three SAS, one of them being a radio uh, operator, to walk to patrol in, go through enemy lines, and go and track down Gallia to help re-establish communications. So Rafael Ramos is one of those people because he can speak Italian pretty well because of his Spanish. So they, they walk, and it's a long way. And this is winter. It's snow. It's everything else. They, they manage to um, uh, meet up with the Gallia operation. Um, their separate operation is called Break 2. So Break 2, they meet up with Gallia, they then take part in the last few days of the Gallia operation. And as they're about to leave and go back behind the enemy, back, back to the Allied lines, they get told, no, 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 you're going, you're, you're going to meet up with Tombola, you know, several miles away uh, and be part of that uh, operation. So they then walk still behind enemy lines all the way and meet up with Tombola. So Rafael Ramos, you know, uh, uh, does that. But what's even more fascinating is when the attack goes into this core headquarters and the attack is led, um, the, the attack is um, starts by 
hopefully using a bazooka to uh, to um, um, uh, uh, attack the main entrance to one of these two villas that are attacking, they're attacking these two villas. The, the bazooka doesn't work, so they then kind of get in and, 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 and do it a different way. However, everything is uh, has a, a, a bagpipes playing in the background. Roy Fran decides he gets hold of a, uh, a piper who who's having a rest. The piper gets gets given parachute training last minute, gets parachuted in on his own, joins the SAS guys, and he's piping away Highland Laddie as the attack's going in. And the idea of that is so that there are no reprisals against the local population, because part of the attack, you've got partisans, you've got uh, Italian resistance, you've also got Russians involved in this. I mean, you couldn't make it up. It, it is honestly an amazing operation. But what makes it even more amazing is um, the pe some people were really, you know, really, really cons conspicuous gallantry, you know, in, in this operation. And one of those is Rafael Ramos. So not only has he walked for six weeks with a he with heavy a heavy load, done two operations, he is part of the one of the main attacks into the main headquarter villa. He goes in, he personally dispatches six Germans single-handedly. One of the captains is, is injured. He carries them over his shoulder out of the building. Then he goes back into the building, carries on fighting. When the fighting is over, he and another SAS trooper put this captain on a ladder and they escape and evade because then they have to all like disappear into the woods kind of thing. They escape and evade for two days from the Germans with this heavy 10 stone plus uh, British officer on a ladder and they rejoin the SAS at, at the end and he gets the military medal for that. So, you know, that's, that's an amazing story. So, uh, so yeah, so the SAS and they, and then obviously second SAS or the whole of the SAS was disbanded at the end of the war, but there's plenty of other stories like that with the Spaniards and they, you know, they really do. And they all, all the Spaniards who end up in the SAS all end up back in the United Kingdom. A lot of them end up, um, settling down in the United Kingdom. Rafael Ramos, I've spoken to his daughter a lot. Um, uh, he, he, he ends up marrying uh, a, che a lady from the Czech Republic, uh, well, Czechoslovakia, as it was called then. Uh, amazing story. Uh, her story is amazing. She, she kind of manages to escape there as well, that her country. They meet up, they decide to get married, kind of. And, uh, and, and you know, sadly, he dies young, which is very, very sad. It would have been but yeah, so military medal there. So, so yeah, SAS, interesting, interesting, and uh, you know, um, some amazing stories there. Um, excuse me a moment whilst I just pick my gob up off the floor. Uh, <laughs> what we've just heard there, um, I can't decide if it's madness or it's genius. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, they do say that the two kind of often intertwine, don't they? But just so much of that is is incredible. We're running out of time, which makes me really sad. But I do want to ask how this ends. For these guys are they able to go home or do they have to wait for franco to die no i mean the sad thing is is that the majority of the spaniards end up staying in the united kingdom at the end of the second world war the biggest problem is is that apart from the ones who are in the number one spanish company uh, uh sas or middle east commandos all the others even the ones who'd gone from north africa to the uk end up being told you're going to be demobilized where you were where you volunteered so you're going back to north africa and there's a guy called Agustin Roaventura, who's one of the members of the, the pioneers that join up in North Africa. And he, he is one of the spokespeople for the Spaniards, and he gets heavily involved in 
deliberations with the British authorities, because by the time the war finishes, we're talking about a Labour government that's in power. And they're able, it's, it's, it's annotated that there are several uh, speeches in the Houses of Houses of Parliament that talk about um, supporting the Spaniards. So a lot of them end up staying um, and settling down. Some of them end up marrying other Spaniards because they were, ironically, I'm I'm trying to do a bit of an audit of how many of them ended up marrying Basque refugee children because there were lots of Basque refugee children that ended up staying in in the United Kingdom in the Second World War. Um, And uh, quite a lot of them end up marrying British as well, settling down. A lot of them end up in London, quite a few in Wales, Birmingham, quite a lot in Birmingham, the Midlands, you know, industrial area. Some some of the stories after the war are, are quite amazing. They, they sent they set up a, a Spanish ex-servicemen's association um, that, that you know they 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 lay wreaths at the cenotaph and all of that. You know they get involved very much in the the fight against Franco. Still, you know, in in exile, you've got this joining of Spanish exiles from the Spanish Civil War and Spanish exiles who'd been in the British Army, and they, and they kind of meet finally at the end of the war because they hadn't really crossed paths that much. And then and then um, a lot of them, are, well, the majority can't go back to Spain. They, they, they don't go back to Spain until after Franco dies in 1975. Um, and quite a few of them end up going back to Spain and, you know, haven't seen their families or their parents or their brothers and sisters or whatever it might be, you know, for, for over 40 years in some cases. You know, it's, it's, it's quite an incredible story. So it's, it's a story that needs telling because nobody really knows about it. And, and there is this community of exiled Spaniards that very well established, you know, Michael Portillo's father was one of them, you know, very famous, um, you know, uh, in, in Britain, you know, and, and people like Paul Preston and people like that have always, you know, fought that corner. And, and there are a lot of people in, in Britain who, who do understand this, but not many people know that there were British, uh, there were British soldiers who were actually Spanish um, fighting in the Second World War. So, you know, that, I, think, I, think, I think that's something that, that, you know, it's important to talk about. Sean, this has been fascinating. Thank you for bringing it all to life for us. And thank you for just sort of kind of opening up all the, the contents of your brain on this, because it's been <laughs> it's been such a ride through it. You're working on a book, aren't you? Is that I am, yeah. So so I, I'm on Twitter. People can track catch me on Twitter. I do the odd tweets. Um uh, but yes, I'm working on a book. Um my plan had been to try and finish it this year. Um I'm still hopefully planning on finishing it this year, but it'll be more towards the end rather than earlier in the year. But yeah, that, the plan is, is that this book will be something that tells the story of those Spanish generally and gives everybody a good feel for things. And then hopefully that'll link, lead on to other projects where I'll talk in a bit more detail um, about specific groups. And how can people find you on Twitter? What's your handle? Uh, Sean underscore F underscore Scullion. That's it. Um, and uh, yeah, so you, you'll find me You'll find me on there. I, I end up um, tweeting quite often about stuff. Um, that and mountains, mostly. Brilliant. Sounds great. Sean, thank you again for just such an incredible ride through the Spaniards who served in the British Army during the Second World War. No problems. Thank you very much and take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.